potential. We're excited about where God has placed us, about the people who call our church home, but we're just not quite where we want to be. So as a way to get the wheels turning, as a way to maybe get closer to where we want to be, it's good for us to be in agreement on our basic identity as a people who call themselves a church. And as we've done that in this series, we've established several things. We've said that the church is a people, not a place. Churches are able to exist anywhere because a building does not make a church. The church is a called out people, not a bricks and mortar structure. Buildings are great. They help us do ministry. They help us serve our community. But lots of churches exist without buildings. And that's because the church is a people. You are the church. Second, we said that the church is built on the word of God. God's revealed word is our sure foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. So Christ and his gospel are what we are told to build our church upon. And what that means is Christ is the main thing in the church, not the music, not the programming, not the pastor, not the small group ministry. Christ is the cornerstone. We have no chance with all our differences and all our individual preferences, we have no chance to be the church if Christ is not the main thing, if he's not the cornerstone. We've also discussed the structure of the local church, which means the church necessarily has a membership and a leadership. A church needs clarity on who has committed themselves to the body, and it needs clarity on who has been entrusted with the leadership of that group. All organizations need leaders, but the church is unique in that the Bible tells us it needs a certain type of leadership. And that leadership starts with elders, which the Bible defines as a group of qualified men called and entrusted to teach and govern, lead and feed, shepherd, care, and pray for a local church. These elders are to be in submission to Christ and his word, they're accountable to the congregation that they serve, and they are called to seek the good of the people. Like a good husband, they don't aspire to power and authority. They aspire to service and sacrifice. And with that sacrifice and service comes the entrusted authority to lead. That's elder leadership. And then framing all of that content is the realization, the, the freeing confession that the church is imperfect. We are imperfect. And what we've said is the imperfection of the church is actually a grace of God because it allows other imperfect people to come in and get in on what we're doing in the church. If the church were perfect, no one could ever feel welcome here. But since it's not perfect, anyone can come and feel welcome here. Our imperfection leads us to swing wide the doors for any and all so today, we arrive at the next question in the series, which is, what is the mission of the church? And we come to this just two weeks removed from our Mission Encounter Sunday, where Todd Arend challenged us to look at the biblical basis for mission. And if you remember, his Sunday morning message was a study on how God has revealed his mission through every turn in Scripture. And I hope that you took from Todd's talk a few things. I hope you took the fact that God is a missionary God and that his design from the beginning is to reach a people with the gospel from every tribe and tongue and nation. From Genesis 
to revelation, that's what's being revealed. And when we read the Bible that way, what's ha- what, what, what happens is we don't place ourselves at the center of every verse. Rather, we understand it is God's heart for the nations that's at the center of every verse. And we conclude that it's not that God has a mission for the church, but God has a church for his mission. Author and scholar Christopher Wright famously put it this way. He said, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. So with that in view, this morning we're going to look at a very familiar verse. Daniel read it just a few minutes ago. We're going to dissect it a little bit. And my hope is that we'll understand more fully what it means to be a church aligned with God's mission. So Matthew 28, if you're not already there, we're going to read verses 18 through 20. No? There we go. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, Matthew writes these words. And Jesus came, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. So from these three verses, five ideas we're going to unpack together. The power behind the mission of the church, the posture of that mission, the product of the mission, what it produces, the practice of it, and then the partner, our partner in the mission. So power, posture, product, practice, and partner. My spiritual gift is alliteration. There you have it. They teach you that in seminary. It's a, long, it's a semester-long course. It's pretty complicated. Anyway... First, though, real succinctly, the heading there in your notes, the mission of the church is blank. What do we put in that blank there? Simplified church is growth. That's the mission of the church. It's implied in the command here in Matthew 28, 18. Now, some churches get so caught up in growth that they tend to lose all their bearings. They get very pragmatic, and they find ways to excuse everything they do by saying, well, it's causing us growth, or it's helping us grow, or people are coming. And the problem is, what you win people with is what you win them to. And if you bring them in with entertainment and fluff, well, you better sustain that. And if you bring them in with messages that are more pep talks than they are gospel, well, you've got to sustain that. And there are some large churches who have mastered the art of growth, of visibly drawing a large crowd, but that maybe isn't exactly what growth means as it relates to this commission here in Matthew 28. More on that as we unpack these verses. Let's get into the outline and look at how the mission of the church is accomplished. First, we have to see there is power behind the mission. Look back at verse 18. How does it start? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So get this. With that sort of proclamation, it really doesn't matter what comes next, does it? Whatever comes next, you can get totally on board with because it's going to happen. Why? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. The Great Commission starts with a great announcement. And that announcement is since the gospel is true and Christ has once and for all died for sin and risen from the grave, all authority belongs to him. I've been doing some study of the book of Mark as I prepare to 
start teaching it in January. And the book of Mark, at least the first eight chapters of Mark, is a, it's a scene-by-scene record of Jesus displaying his authority. His religious authority over Judaism, his natural authority over creation, his spiritual authority over demons, and his governmental authority over Rome, his authority over sickness, and even his authority over death itself. All authority belongs to Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of it serves as one giant commentary on the fact that all authority belongs to him. So here in these words to the disciples... He empowers them by saying, what I am sending you to do has my authority behind it. So the purpose he is giving them is actually driven by a promise. The promise of his all-encompassing authority. So when the church engages the mission, there is just an awesome power behind it. Second, the posture of the mission We see that in verse 19. It says, go therefore. Again, the therefore is rooted in the authority that's given to Jesus. And because all authority is given to Jesus, we then are to go. But I want you to notice what is actually being said here when Jesus says go. We almost always read the go in the Great Commission as leave. Leave where you are and go somewhere else. Pack your bags, pack your house, pack your kids, learn Spanish or Farsi or Mandarin or whatever, cross an ocean, send prayer letters, and then come back and do a slideshow. That's what we think of when we say go. But the go here in verse 19 doesn't actually translate to leave or to go somewhere else. It can be taken that way. We certainly have the example of the Apostle Paul who demonstrated just a great commitment to spreading the gospel far and wide. But the language of verse 19 is such that go actually reads as you go. As you go. Meaning, this isn't a verse only about packing up your life and your family and raising support. It also means as you go in your life. As you live your life. Where your life is lived, you are to live on mission. It's saying as you go, you're to always be going. This is not a special command for a special group that answers a special call. This is a call for all of us. As you go, as you go, know that you've been uniquely placed in your neighborhood, in your office, in your classroom if you're a teacher, in your squadron, in your checkout line. You've been placed in all those settings to be on a mission that has the authority of Jesus behind it. You guys know Psalm 139? Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. If you've ever been to a baby shower or a woman of faith conference, you've heard these verses. And the men are like, Jay, you've been to a baby shower? or No, I haven't. But you've heard these verses. Here they are. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is just a spectacular passage, isn't it? Here's what he just said. God knit you together in your mother's womb. And there are two things that God did in there. One, God put together your physical form, how you were built. 
And he did that in connection with the days that he had formed for you. So he wired who you would be, and then he wired where you would go. Now what am I getting at? I'll tell you a story. My two best friends growing up were Casey Carricker and Craig Batchelor. Casey is now the senior pastor of a church in the town I grew up in. Craig went to Bible college, then he went to seminary, but decided he wanted to make some money. So he went to an Ivy League law school, and now he practices law in New York City. Two pretty different paths, but these were, and for the most part, still are my best friends. Casey's mom was my eighth grade English teacher. She was also the Fellowship of Christian Athletes sponsor at my junior high. So I remember the day very vividly. I walk into the school early one morning. I see Casey. He's been waiting for me. And he says, come with me. We're going to FCA. So I go with him. And I hear the gospel. And I'd never really heard the gospel before. I'd kind of been to church. I knew Jesus was why we celebrated Christmas. But but no one had ever told me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and that Christ had died for me. I'd never heard that. So from that point on, I went to FCA. Every week, I'm going. Every week, I'm hearing the gospel. Every week, I'm awakened to my need for salvation. And after a year of hearing the gospel, I put my trust in Jesus. And so now, I'm a Christian. And I need to go to church. And I can't go to Casey's church because you weren't allowed to wear shorts to Casey's church. And I couldn't even process that whole idea. So enter my friend Craig. Craig's dad is an elder at his church. So I go to church with Craig. And the Bible is now being taught to me. I get baptized. I begin to read and study and go to camps and retreats and mission trips. And by the time I'm a junior or senior in high school, I'm the one sharing my testimony of faith in Christ with the 8th graders. You fast forward a few more years, I get very involved in ministry in college. Ministry becomes my passion. It's always on my mind. And 16 years later, I'm standing here doing the only thing I've ever really ever wanted to do. And none of it was circumstantial. You hear that? None of it was circumstantial. Psalm 139. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. I was thinking through, as I was thinking through this this week, as to how I was going to say it all. I, in my office, I just started bawling. I just started crying my eyes out. I was just praying, Lord Jody, just don't let Jody come in and she's not going to know how to like, process all this. <laughs> Casey was my best friend. He said, come with me to FCA. Craig was my best friend. He said, come with me to church. I'm standing here today and I'm opening the word of God. I'm proclaiming it to you because my best friends growing up were from solid Christian homes and they wanted to see me know the Lord and grow in the the Lord. And as they were going, they were living on mission. And I'm a product of that. These These were eighth grade boys who impacted my life for eternity. Eighth grade boys. You know what an eighth grade boy is good for? Nothing at all. They think they're cool, they're not. They think they're good at sports, they're not. You know, the only thing an 8th grade boy is really good at is just making fun of other 8th grade boys. That's it. But unless you're God, you can actually use something like that. And I hope you realize what, what thinking this way actually means for your life. It means the purpose of you living in your neighborhood goes well beyond you simply living in that neighborhood. It means whoever you share a cubicle with at work, the purpose of that goes way beyond just 
work. Whoever you fly with goes way beyond some random assignment. Your days were formed so that as you go, you get to join God on his mission. You see what I'm getting at there? My girls just memorized Acts 17 at school. That's Paul at Mars Hill preaching a sermon. In verses 24 through 26, read this way. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined, God having determined, their allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 139, doesn't it? God uniquely wiring you, God uniquely placing you. And he does this so that, this is how Paul finishes the sermon, so that men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Again, you don't just live here, you've been placed here so that God would not be far from anyone you do life with. The other parents on your kid's soccer team, you're there so that God would not be far from any one of them. So that God would not be very far from anyone you go to the gym with. Some of you lack motivation to go to the gym. Well, here's some motivation. You will run into people there that need Jesus. So go on mission to the gym. God can be near to every one of your neighbors because he has placed you amongst them. All that to say, as you go, not leave... But the mission of the church is to understand that as you go, you've been uniquely placed to be on mission everywhere. Third, the product of the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples, is what the text says. The product of the mission or what the mission produces are disciples. To be a disciple, according to the English word, is to be a student. Therefore, to be a student of Jesus means to be a follower of Jesus. And the point of the command is this. The church is not to merely seek converts. We are to make disciples. And just to distinguish the two, converts and disciples, converts make a decision to follow Christ. Disciples make lots of decisions to follow Christ. And there's a real breadth to the gospel that applies to this, and it's that many of us think of the gospel as only the entry point to the Christian life. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, now we're ready to move on to discipleship, meeting with mentors and memorizing verses. That's discipleship. And none of those things are bad things. In fact, meeting with mentors and memorizing verses are really good things. Christian discipleship, however, is rooted in the same thing that Christian conversion is rooted in, and that's the gospel. What takes place at conversion is a life-altering exposure to the truth of the gospel. Therefore, discipleship is an ongoing, life-altering exposure to the truth of the same gospel. When we come to faith in Christ, the experience is usually, I realize I'm a sinner, Jesus is the Savior, I'll put my trust in Jesus. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that there are a lifetime of implications wrapped up in that. And it's those implications that actually fuel our discipleship. So discipleship is simply unearthing all the implications of the gospel for your life, and it's going to take you your whole life to scratch the surface of those implications. 
So disciples aren't a certain kind of Christian. Disciples are those who love Jesus and follow Jesus because they are, in the best way possible, stuck in the glory of the gospel. And that's where they want to remain. And that kind of thinking deeply impacts the mission of the church. It makes the mission of the church preaching the gospel in ways that compel people not just to agree with it once and then move on, but to keep on agreeing with it. So much so so that it shapes their whole life, their choices and their relationships and how they use their money, everything. If a church does that, if it's committed to the gospel and committed to living the gospel and heralding the gospel, the product of the mission will be disciples. Now the practice. The practice of the mission. There are actually two practices in this text. Baptizing and teaching. These practices are tied in with making disciples. Let's start with baptism. Those discipled in the gospel will see the practice of baptism as a ritual deeply connected to the gospel. Baptism is a celebration of the saving work of Jesus. And if you love the saving work of Jesus, you will desire to identify with him through baptism. That's what baptism is. It's a public identification with Christ, our Savior. You remember Acts chapter 8, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip has shared the gospel with this man. He's searching. He's been to Jerusalem. He's searching the scriptures. Philip shows up. He asks for an explanation. Philip provides an explanation. The eunuch trusts in Christ. And the very next thing the passage says is, and as they were going, sound familiar? As they were going, the eunuch says, look, here is water. What is keeping me from being baptized? Clearly, Philip, in explaining the gospel, had shared with him the reason and the weight of baptism, so he immediately wanted to observe the practice because he wanted to identify with Christ. Baptism is a public showing of your union with Christ. It's a ritual that publicly proclaims to your church family, I've died with Christ, and I've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, and I want everyone here to know it. And so essentially what that makes the church is a group of baptized believers in Jesus Christ. And some of you, maybe you've been kind of taking, you've been thinking about baptism, but you just kind of keep pushing it down the timeline. It's it's another few steps away, or maybe it's another few years away, or a few weeks away, or a few months away, and you just kind of push it down the timeline. And I think through verses like this and others in the New Testament, we see it as a really crucial step in your obedience and your following of Jesus Christ, one that I think maybe you should think about if you've never engaged with, whether you're young or whether you're old. And the companion practice to baptism here is teaching. Baptizing them, teaching them, teaching them everything I commanded. To be a disciple, as I said, is to be a student. And to be a student then implies learning. So as the people of God, we are learners. We are learners, and learning impacts everything we do. Think about it. The Bible also calls us worshipers. And since we are learners, we're we're always learning how to worship God in a way that pleases Him. And we're servants, always learning how to serve more humbly. And we're also called in Scripture a family, and so we're, we're always learning how to knit our lives more closely together. 
The Bible calls us a body, and so we're learning more and more how to function as a unified whole. And we're also missionaries, and so we're learning more and more what it looks like to take the gospel to the world around us. And what's all this learning require that we're doing? It requires teaching. A huge part of any church that wants to be faithful to the mission is teaching. It's a commitment to sound doctrine and the transfer of that doctrine from those who have a grasp on it to those who need to be more fully rooted in it. So those are the practices of the church, baptizing and teaching. Now, the partner in the mission. The partner in the mission. The mission, as I've laid it out, clearly requires just a tremendous amount of spiritual power. And this is why Christ is so gracious to leave us with this final word in verse 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the reason that promise is so packed with power is the one who made it has already told us he's the one who has all the authority. And the promise is not, I'm going to have my power and authority from sort of far away, but he's saying, no, I'm actually going to be with you. I'm going to be beside you, and I'm not going to leave you. He's all-powerful, forever, by our side, to the end. The Great Commission is sandwiched between, between two great declarations of grace. All authority has been given to me, and I am with you always. And so as we think about the mission of the church, I think we can carry it out by remembering that we are just in between that glorious grace. The promise of absolute authority on one side and the promise of his constant presence on the other side. With that, we cannot lose. We cannot lose. So your questions as I close are, of course, well, how, do we, how do we do it? How do we accomplish the mission? We see the power, we see the authority of Jesus. And the posture that we do this as we go and the product that, that we need to make disciples and the practices to commit to baptism and teaching and the promised partner, Jesus, who's never going to leave us. We see all that. So, Jade, now, now tell us, what does the program look like? How are you and the staff going to carry this out? What are you going to put together so that the church can expand and fulfill its mission? And my answer is, man, i got no program. There are no events on the calendar. The people in your life, the people in your office, in your school, in your neighborhood, they will not be reached by me. Mailers and newspaper ads are not going to bring them to Jesus. No way, it's not going to happen. The program is you. You're the program. Because the growth of the church is not program-driven. It's people-driven. Jesus has told us this much. The Great Commission is accomplished by people who, as they go, who, as they go, they act as heralds of the gospel. They do their jobs well. They're good neighbors. They're good friends. They fulfill their promises. They meet their obligations. They, they go, and they herald the gospel in word and in deed, and they're active in making disciples and baptizing and teaching others to obey. Philip Ryken He's the current president of Wheaton College. He echoes this. He says, missions is not simply something that we support. It is who we are. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. The only question is, how well are you doing your job? Whom are you loving, praying for, inviting to dinner, bringing to church? 
There is still a great deal of work to do right here, right now, and all over the world until Christ is preached to all nations. Then the end will come. That's the mission of the church. Are you on, are you on that mission? I pray that you are. Because we have a great thing here as we've talked about the one another's and we've talked about running to each other when we're in need and serving one another and loving one another and caring and greeting and encouraging one another and helping one, coming alongside, standing in the gap for each other when we need help. We have a great thing, but the tragedy of all tragedies would be that we take that great thing and we say, man, this is ours. This is our great thing. And not look at the commission and go, man, as we go, we're to invite anyone and everyone in to this great thing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and um, we thank you for this command of Jesus. And I pray that it would be a command that, that we obey gladly that as we ponder 